right, we're here today with Leon Zhang. Leon, thank you for coming in for the podcast. Thank you, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's always been, um, I've always wanted to like, come in the podcast ever since like listening to you. It was like, um, I'm pretty sure this fall, um, I came to um, hear about the podcast when I was with uh, one of my friends, Jamie Howard, and he introduced me to the podcast, and I listened to a couple episodes. Yeah, we need to get Jamie on. Jamie uh, has been interested for a while now, and he's definitely going to come on this spring, but I'm glad that you've listened to a few episodes and you like it, and yeah, thanks for coming in. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's an honor, too, yeah. So I didn't know you were a senior, so tell me a little bit about your senior year. Yeah, so senior year has been um, really great. Um, it's been, um, it's kind of like stressful, um, and but also like liberating at the same time, because um, you have that like sense of like you're waiting, especially right now, because I haven't gotten my decision yet, but you're waiting, but you're also like, you feel like you're free already. You feel like you're free. You feel like you're like liberating, right? Because you're done with your applications. Yeah, what is, what is it like to be a second semester senior when everything's in and grades don't really count and you're just trying to get to May and enjoy yourself? Yeah, there is definitely a sense of like having a lot of time in your hands. You want to try new things. You want to build better relationships with the people around you. And being a second semester senior is just... Um, and there's definitely like a lot of people have noticed um, like senioritis among... Um, definitely hits for some people, mm-hmm. but um, for me, I think definitely I, I really I've really enjoyed like um, in my classes like just like learning for like the sake of learning as opposed to like for the grades because now like um, it's not that great grades don't matter right now but um, in my classes which I'm taking six of um, it's really like you're just like learning the stuff that you're really interested in always. Yeah, I mean, that's the best. And that's sort of what we always want as teachers is for the students to learn for the sake of learning. But there's always that looming college admissions process where you actually do need the grades to apply. And it's, you know, it's a it's a difficult situation, but um, that's great. And six classes is a lot. That's overzealous as a, as a senior. Yeah, I did consider, I did reconsider, but one of my classes is, um, two of my classes actually are GOA classes, which um, I took um, in my second semester. I decided to take on an extra class because it was like one I was really interested in. And it was called Religion in Society, and it, it delved into some like aspects of um, learning that I've always been interested in. So, who teaches the GOA? Stuff? So, the GOA is um, in, um, it's a global on- online academy, and it's directed by Mr. Fitzgibbon. He's like the main like site director for everything, Gilman, at Gilman, and it's a big like connection with a bunch of other schools um, across the world, and it's like really amazing because you get to learn with people like in on the other side of the world, and it's like like the amount like I think the biggest benefit I've gotten from it is like the diversity perspectives. Um, How many students are in like a given class for in a given class? Well, it varies from class to class. In my um, first semester class, uh, GOAS, which was international relations, um, I think there were about like, it's about like the size of a Gilman class. But um, in my religion and society class, which is this semester, um, I think there were only like like nine people um, or so. And then there also have a macroeconomics class, which is, um, um, that has a lot more people because 
um, a lot of people are more interested in that. And is it over Zoom? And, and do you, once you know some of your classmates in these GOA classes, do you keep in touch with them at maybe outside of the online classroom? Yeah, so it uses, um, it uses a um, messaging platform called Twist. And a lot of it, most of it, a majority of it is asynchronous. So you do every week you do, there's a signed amount of work and you do asynchronous work. And then every other week you have a Zoom call with, uh, you have a Zoom call with either a partner or, or with the teacher. And you, you have like more collaborative assignments and that's really my favorite part about it, yeah. Oh, nice, that's great. That's, uh, yeah. what, what class are you taking here? I see you walking over to Bryn Mawr. Oh, um, yeah, um, that's uh, my a computer science class. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, computer science class, yeah. Is that what you're into? Like, what is your area of focus, you think, next year when you go to college? Yeah, you definitely. Like? Um, for me, um, I've always been interested in international politics and classics, Latin. These are two are, like, basically the main things. And since I'm religious and um, I've also considered uh, – um, having a um, studying like religion in college mm -hmm. and that's why I'm obviously I'm taking the religion and society course so yeah um either international politics um relations uh classics in latin which I feel like is also very important and uh religion these are like my three main prospects and I'm still like m relatively undecided good for you yeah. um I know that does Mr. Goldman teach a religion class here? Or he does. Yeah, he? I wasn't able to. Um, I wasn't able to get into a few of his um, like the world religions courses. Um, they, I think, they had a conflict with some of my other courses because I, I wanted to take like so many courses, but that I wasn't able to like fit. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, sick. Yeah. You've got a full schedule, which is yeah. good. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's most seniors are trying to get out of classes. It's true. Yeah, yeah. but and I, I, yeah, and as I said before, it's I wanted to like approach it, not like as like, oh, I'm taking up so many like grades that I need to get higher. It's right. more like, yeah. Trying to learn as much as you can. Yeah. I actually did the same thing. I think my senior year I was taking, I took human anatomy, which I've always been glad I took that class. My mom wanted me to take that because she was, she was on her way to become a doctor when she was younger. And she's like, you got to learn about the human body. It's so interesting and it's so important. And I've always been glad I took that human anatomy class my senior year of high school because, you know, it's, it's, why not? You're taking advantage of the opportunities you have. That's an opportunity to learn more, more, especially take advantage of it, yeah. So how long have you gone to Gilman? Um, so I'm a four-year um, four Gilman, so I came to Gilman in ninth grade during COVID. Okay. Yeah. Um, same as a lot of people. Uh, I came from Calvert. Okay. Um, so a lot of people, a lot of Calvert kids um, come to Gilman, so... Yeah, yeah, it's the pipeline, the Calvert-Gilman pipeline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was it like coming here during COVID? Um, it was a um, for me. It was actually surprisingly a, like a relatively smooth transition for me, um, uh, because we already had like uh, virtual stuff going on um, in like the last few uh, months of middle school, and so virtually, virtual. Um, I think I wasn't able to connect. And obviously, as much with my new classmates, but I think I still did make a lot of things all online. Um, one of my first friends, as I said before, Jamie Howard, was met through on, like online, and we talked a lot too. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it was such a weird time. I remember uh, I was thinking about it the other day. Just 
teaching online, it was basically just trying to make sure everyone in your class on Zoom was doing okay because it was so strange in the world and no one really knew what was going on. And, you know, mentally, I was just trying to make sure that, hey, guys, how are you doing? Like, you you doing all right today? You get outside a little bit. Did you take care of yourself? Did you wake up, make your bed, right? That was sort of the, you know, the, the main focus of my classes during COVID. I, I feel like... We did some reading, we did some learning, but we also just checked in on each other. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So let's talk about your uh, interest in religion, because that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. That yeah. That's something that is important to you and something mm-hmm. that you might want to study next year. Where did that start? Well, um, so I've always been a, a Buddhist. As I'm a Buddhist, I've always been a Buddhist. Um, it's been a, like a very like central part of my entire identity, um, we just came back from David Netzer's, um, senior speech. He, um, if he, if his central identity is, is as a Jewish, for me, it's definitely as a Buddhist. Okay. Um, uh, the specific sect, uh, of Buddhism that I practice is Pureland Buddhism. Um, essentially it's like a, it's a sect that, um, emphasizes the chanting of a certain Buddha. His name, um, name is Amitofo Buddha. And, um... This is like the the central identity, like the, like the central practice of this sect hmm. of Buddhism. So, what is the, uh, the the purpose behind the chanting? That's interesting. Yeah. So, um, the chanting is um, it means infinite light, and it's kind of a way to like focus your energy into like the chanting instead of if you've heard of Zen meditation. Mm-hmm. It's basically Zen is basically um, thinking of like nothing, and that's extremely hard to do. Like. Mm-hmm extremely hard to do um, for, like, extended periods of time. So basically what Pureland does is it um, focuses the energy instead of thinking of nothing to thinking of or chanting or using the chanting as, like, a substitute. To But it also has a certain meaning behind it. Like, it means um, infinite light. And it's, like, the way I think of it is, like, trying to, like, pour. And I use it in everyday, my everyday life when I'm chanting. I have these beads right here that um, that... I used to like keep track of like chants and stuff. Interesting. So to count the the yes. chants. Yes. Yes. Oh wow. Yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty How nice. often do you chant every day in meditation? Um, yes. So every day, um, it doesn't matter um, where I am um, or what I'm doing. Um, it's like it's always um, like by me within times of like distress or times of um, times of. Um, Oh, like happiness. Um, it's kind of a way to like have the like kind of Buddha around you always and stuff. Have you ever done this in a group setting or is it more individualized? Like you meditate by yourself or do you meditate in a group? So I have in um, uh, like a long time, like when I was little, um, when I went to China, um, some, I went to like a temple um, where we would, um, have these, like, like, group chants, um, where you walk in, like, a circle, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's not anything, like, um, uh, so you would walk in a circle, and, um, and, like, Buddhist monks would, um, would be chanting, um, but in America, um, I'm the only Buddhist I, I've known in America, so I haven't gotten a lot of opportunities, or to, 
uh, have I haven't like been in co- contact with any other Buddhists. So it's obvious it's individualized, like individual chanting. And is it something that your family is? If does this come from your family? It's very important to your family, and that's where you learned it and picked it up and got into it. Yeah. Um, so um, how I became a Buddhist was um, when I was like four. When I was four. Um, so my mom is um, my mom is uh, Buddhist, and she she was she wasn't a Buddhist her entire life. She became Buddhist when she was like when she was older, and she learned about it. And my dad is um, is um, he doesn't have a particular um, uh, religious affiliation, but he uh, is more his family comes from a, um, pe- a pe- uh, some people um, in China. Um, from ancient Persia, so they're called the Pui people. So they're an Islamic um, people in China. Mm-hmm. So my family background comes from Islam, and my mom is Buddhist. And how I became Buddhist was, so my mom, I sh- she showed me a video um, when I was four, and um, it was like about baby cows like being pulled from their mothers and being slaughtered. And when I was little, I I think I like cried. And um, and I just became Buddhist and um, vegetarian ever since. Interesting. In that one moment after watching that, yeah, I don't know, maybe it was like fate or something, but yeah. What was what's the connection between that video and Buddhism? Um. So, so Buddhism has um very like st- strong like peaceful, um, not maybe not hurting animals, mm-hmm. and um the video just really like inspired like. The video had like um like I was really like I felt like sympathy and stuff. Yeah. Sympathy. Okay. Um and it's yeah. Yeah. What are some of the other practices and aspects, maybe belief systems of your particular sex form of Buddhism? So like beliefs, so in Or or practices like you talked about the chanting, mm-hmm. you talked about the beads on your wrist. Yeah. Other uh rituals and forms of I guess belief. So that, I guess that's so. Um, particular to your yeah. sect. We have um, we um we also like read out the sutras, kind of like reading out like in Western traditions, you you would read out the Bible or read out the Torah, um, and we would like read out these like sutras, um, uh, also, you would um, kind of like kneel kneel, and um, we have like a small like shrine, dedicated um with statues. And it's a very small place. Um, it's a small place of worship. Um, there aren't we we wouldn't go to like a temple because there aren't any. And um, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your trip to China that you mentioned earlier and going to China. When did you do that, and what was that like? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, when I was little, I, I mean, I always had like, um, like uh, um, my mom always taught me about like. The traditions of our culture and going to China. Um, it was it was when I was pretty young. The last time I went was six years ago, I believe, and um, it's mostly because of COVID. We haven't been able to go go back, and um, we visit our family. Um, I think I learned a lot more about my family background. Um, my background as we went to uh, my mom's old like home when she was young. Hmm. Um, it was. It, she lives in the northern, most probably in, in Manchuria, um, and it's a very rural area. 
um, I saw a um, very rural area, and we also went to my dad's, um, where she she lived in like um, like a kind of a poor sector of the city. And have your parents ever talked to you about how they came to America and met each other and came over here? Um, so they met in, they met in China, and my parents um, they came over kind of um, for like education purposes. And yeah, what has it been like for you growing up uh, here in Baltimore? Um, growing up, um, I've always been have like the kind of like side between American and Chinese, and all, a lot of people have that. A lot of people have that. Um, uh, kind of, but a lot of people like kind of go go in within their like American side, their American culture, and um, for me. Um, it really hasn't been different. I feel like that I would be able to, um, like I have a certain sense more of like a Chinese, I feel like I would have been more different mm -hmm. um, as in living in America than I would have been in China. Um, other than that, like like the education system or like lear learning, going to school in America, that obviously is something that is can't be changed. But in terms of like learning the Chinese language and learning um, the culture, everything is um, relatively, I feel like it would, it, they stay the same because of how like well my parents taught me. Yeah, and especially, I mean, going to a place like Gilman and education and, you know, even the GOA classes that you were talking about, the access to classes that are being offered all over the world, I mean, it just opens up so much for you coming to this particular school, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, as a senior, are you uh, are you bummed to leave? Or are you excited? What's kind of the emotional state in February of senior year? I'm definitely um, like the the bonds I made over everything, but I'm also really excited to um, to meet um, a lot of like really like stimulating like intellectually stimulating people, people that could like help me um, like expand my boundaries a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What kind of what kind of school are you looking for? Like, where where would you like to go to school next year? Um, so I'm, I, I I prefer a like, in terms of like the culture. Yeah, um, or the size or, or the location. Size, the location, like, um, when I look at schools, the, the top priority for me was definitely like the culture. Um, I know I've said culture like so many times, but like, um, like the environment, I guess more of the other thing, um, the academic environment, and like how the people are mainly, like, if, are people collaborative? Are people, um, like, competitive? Um, for me, I really want, like, like collaborative environment mm -hmm. and, like, where everyone kind of, like, um, is their own, like, community and supportive of each other, yeah. Has the uh, college application process been pretty grueling, pretty difficult all year long? It's been, it's been, it's been tough, yeah. It's yeah. been um, writing essays and, um, writing essays and having that like kind of like reflection process is very um, it's been you really need to like 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 dig really deep down yeah. within yourself to kind of find that um, and for me um, the things I wrote about were um, sometimes obvious but sometimes also um, but like once you get have like put things down on paper and you like try to like find more, it becomes harder. 
for sure, for sure. It's such a challenge. Um, I've asked a couple of people who have come on here about their college essays because I've been working my junior English classes to write stronger personal essays in preparation for the college experience and the supplemental essays. How did you figure out what you wanted to write about and what did you end up deciding? Like what subjects did you decide to write about? Yeah, so um, in terms of my supplemental essays, um, I really kind of like focused on, you know, the, um, my, like, first of all, my academic interests and second of all, kind of, um, and I also really focused on kind of my identity because, you know, this year with, a, um, there have been a lot of like diversity essays, mm-hmm. um, and they like colleges, um, that's what they're called, like quote unquote diversity essays, because the, um, a lot of them are phrased like, um, what aspects of your identity um, allow you to like make a con- contribution to the co- our college campus? Mm-hmm. And for me, I wrote about a lot of um, one of my religion um, and kind of how it um, it's a, one supported me, but also allowed me to like um, have a better impact like in an academic environment too. So, um, yeah. for for reasons outside of just the fact that there aren't maybe many Buddhists write, like writing an essay on that aspect of your religion, or for other reasons, do you think that you would contribute to a school community because of your religious background? Yeah. So, um, in my main essay, I my common app, I wrote about um, how my religion kind of. I wrote about like a from my start of how I thought um, my religion was like being passive, because Buddhism has like the stereotype of being very peaceful and passive and not doing anything. Right. But then like, um, but then slowly throughout um, like my journey through high school, I like felt like I wasn't doing kind of like enough, and that um, that bo- and then later because a lot of, through a lot of lessons through my mother. Um, that I, like, I kind of be, was taught to have a more active um, role within my community. And um, how Buddhism really wasn't, um, I really focused on like the Amitofo part and I focused on like the infinite light. And I said that the infinite light part really like, that what that really means is to like shine the infinite light upon like, um, and like help as many people as you can, um, like take an active role in your community. Interesting. Okay, so the way most people think about Buddhism who aren't familiar with it, think, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, sitting in a room and meditating and being quiet and passive, as you said, Mm -hmm. and maybe reframing that to what it, you know, really means to you, which is participating, being active, helping other people, involving yourself, you know, coming on the podcast, I think is a big thing. Yeah. Um, I was glad that you reached out and wanted to come on. Absolutely. Talk about this. Yeah, and uh, I I think that, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that um, that that meditating isn't like an active thing. I feel like in order to better others, you need to better yourself first, and I think that's also one of the key tenets of Buddhism. And that's what my so you first need to um, better yourself, and then you need to better like slowly move forward to to uh, like your small your immediate community, and then your like. A, and then a larger community. And uh, what I said is actually from a 
Confucianist text um, that um, you first needed like better this, better small, and then grow large. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's get to your book recommendation, Orientalism, Edward Said, and uh, um, where did you find this book, and, and what has been maybe sticking out to you in your in your reading of it? Yeah, so um, I found this book um, uh, actually through one of my previous GOA classes, International Relations, and <laughs> it was recommended to me um, as, like, one of the most fundamental, like, books that you, that people, the college students had to read before. Um, especially in a humanities course, um, because, uh, and it's basically about this semi like mythical construct that, um, that the like Western, um, scientists, philosophers, like academic studies, um, have imposed on like the East Mm -hmm. and it draws back to like a long time ago, um, of like probably even before colonialism where people had like you know how people had like this idea of um, like exotic, like exotic Asia, mm-hmm. um, Asia as being like this like crazy place that everyone wanted. Um, people like heard tales about like um, how like where the silk was from or the um, um, where the China was from, these things, and <coughs> people really just um, and Said kind of. Like goes into this, and he defines or the word Orientalism in a lot of in three ways. I think I remember. Um, the first way is um, the academic way, where I just talked about where like studies people would study um, the East as a Westerner without even like visiting the East, mm-hmm. and people would just like based off any assumption they could to kind of portray the East in ways they could and and it's obviously very um very biased and very um like a lot of the colonialism and imperialism would be like justified through um some of the these like experts on the oriental world when a lot of them haven't even and Saeed says that in order to in order to have um, like a good understanding, you need to have it face to face, vis uh, vis And um, the second thing that he mentions is kind of like the Orientalism as a definition of like being opposed to the West. So he said Orient is um, opposite to the Occident, mm-hmm. which means um, so Orient means uh, the Latin word for rising, and Occident means fa- um, it means falling, mm-hmm. um, and these were two words that like represented the East and the West, and Orientalism was basically a idea that the Westerners created to like um, to counter like them like this is everything that we shouldn't be. Um, this is everything that we shouldn't be. This is um, and they like portrayed the, the East as a um, in a different way to the West, so they could. Um, so if anything, Orientalism is more about the West than it is about the East. And the way the West perceives the culture, the people of the East, and maybe oversimplifies or caricaturizes the the, the East in general. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the third one that he says is more like concrete; it's more materialistic. It's about the, um, it's about like the actual like, 
um, like institutions that um, were like served to the like oppress the um, people under colonial rule. And Said, Said Edward Said, Said, he's a Palestinian American activist. He grew up in Palestine um, under like an Israeli occupation, and he um, he went he went to America and got educated and. He talks about um, he talks he mainly focuses Oriental on the Middle Eastern world because it's been so like prevalent within um, like today's like news lines and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also think that it can it's pretty obvious that this can also be applied to South East Asia, East Asia, um, and every part of the East, everything east of Europe really. What is the most compelling aspect of this argument? Because it's really an argument, right, that Said yeah. constructs here. What is most compelling to you? Um, for me, definitely, it's just um, just the um, East kind of being, because over, like, history, um, there's this idea of, like, th- a few kinds of, like, violences so there's um, like culture violence and direct violence, and I've kind of seen that, which whatever violence that happens in the world, they're either like condemned or accept, they're kind of condemned or accepted, and when they're accepted, they're usually supported by different kinds of like cultural norms that you would be expected. For like the most obvious example, I think was would be like the slave trade. People um, and scientists would justify the slave trade by. Um, by kinds of um, people justified by scientific means, mm-hmm. um, judging people by um, that people are inferior to because um, people are inferior because of um, different like scientific studies, and we also know that Nazi Germany has had a, a numerous amounts of like horrifying um, kind of experiments and stuff. And these these were like academic studies, exactly what Said is talking about, mm-hmm. and and. Um, and de- like demonizing in like the, uh, the Eastern peoples. So it's combining the scientific and the, the cultural aspect and, you know, different <laughs> fields of study in order to form this, I guess, perception or simplification of a, an entire group of people is what you're, is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, so yeah, Orientalism is really, um, it's very, it's a very broad term. It's not, like it means scientific, cultural, historical, mm-hmm. um, political. It, it it encompasses all of these aspects into one, um, regarding the um, east and the west kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I think about is actually I was just in my U.S. history class and we were talking about uh, manifest destiny and this idea of moving west and the way you know white settlers were were treating Native Americans who occupied, like the Plains Indians who occupied pretty much majority of the Midwest and the West uh, in order to occupy that land, that territory. There was a lot of, I guess you could say it's propaganda. I mean, um, the way that people saw the West and its beauty and, you know, come out here and go to Oregon and just take the Oregon Trail out there and you could set up shop and, you know, build a family and build a community out there. While that was true, in some ways, it also caricaturized or simplified the fact that there were a lot of hardships out there too. And there were people living out there um, 
who were sort of in the way of that. And uh, I think, you know, from what I've read about Orientalism and what I've studied in this U.S. history class that I'm teaching is just in order to get people to do certain things, you know, colonialism or, um, you know, settling different places, there's got to be a story that's told. And sometimes that story is oversimplified in order to motivate people. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I think that um, when you mentioned Men of Destiny, I was reminded of um, in the third chapter of his book where he um, went on like the types of Orientalism that could happen. There's um, like the latent, latent Orientalism, which is a type of Orientalism that um, just like the raw ideas, the raw ideas of these like studies that come out and they're just kind of like sitting there um, waiting to be um, like used. And then there's also manifest Orientalism, which is very like um, reminiscent of the manifest destiny, mm-hmm. and the and manifest Orientalism is the these ideas being put into action um, in forms of um, kind of oppression and more like st- structural, um, like institutional, um, like just these systems that kind of um, put the East like below the West. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, too, just thinking about the perpetrator of, of these ideas is always, you know, even like the Nazis or, um, you know, other colonialist things that have happened in history. Of These people have thought that what they're doing is right, you know, justified for all of these ways. I have all this information behind me, this history, these scientific studies. So that should allow me to go out into the world and do what I need to do, right? So it's, it's all justified in the perpetrator's mind. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of hard to, and it's like impossible to also identify the perpetrator of um, like these actions because um, it's like a system, really. It's a system of ideas. And so um, you can't like pinpoint one person that like did all this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the painting on the front of this book, which I find is interesting. And it's um, when you look up Orientalism, it's like the, the visual image that comes up is this painting called the Snake Charmer. And um, if you wouldn't mind just holding it up to the camera. Um, thank you. Yeah. It's just interesting because Saeed doesn't mention this painting in, in the book, but it is a perfect um, a symbol of really what he's talking about in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, yeah, I did some, uh, I looked into the painting a little bit and yeah, I, as you mentioned, he doesn't mention it in the book, but he said he chose the painting for a very specific purpose in representing, um, it, it's a, it's a perfect representation, representation of how, um, the, the West tries to represent the East for itself. Um, that actually reminds me that the first one of the quotes, uh, first quotes of the book, it says, uh, the East cannot be represented. It, the East cannot represent itself. It must be represented. Hmm. So this is an example of, I believe, yeah, Jean-Léon Jérôme. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a French painter, and he, he drew this painting that, um, so you, if you see, there's the, um, here, it shows, like, it's attempting to show, like, the, barbarism and like the like the backwardsness of um like these middle eastern cultures and um 
the walls are things that are supposed to represent it like the like the fan, like the fantastic like exotic like um art and imagery like that um westerners like desire mm-hmm. like that, that desire of these like exotic um like cultures but then like the people the actual people that they portray in a very like dim light they, they're like very lazy and you also see them um um, the boy who isn't wearing clothes, so it's seen as very backwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say about this painting? Um, yeah, for me, I mean, I, I when you told me you were bringing this book, uh, I did some research into it and I read a little bit about it. And the main thing that I that I picked out was just this idea of stereotype, right? It's stereotyping groups of people. So even in the painting, you see the people who we're looking at on the back wall, right, that, that, that don't notice the, you know, the, the art behind them, and they're just looking for their entertainment at the Snake Charmer, they're cast in a stereotypical sort of uh, unidimensional way, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're, they're just absolutely, yeah, like the steady stereotypes, these, like, the cultural, um, um, like, aspects that kind of, um, like enforce um, like more di- violence in terms of ways so. alright well I'll have to give this book a read because I did you know enough yeah, research on it that yeah. now I'm interested but um, what are you looking forward to I guess most in the next couple of months of senior year oh yeah yeah absolutely um, I've been um, I've been in um, I've, I definitely want to try like Try definitely a lot more um, like thing like things. I've been, I went to um, Gilman News mm-hmm. and I went with the guys there and um, uh, I've been trying to get involved in that. Um, they assigned me an article that I'm gonna I'm gonna be writing I think over like the next week. Um, basically, like it's like what it means to be a Gilman man, mm. and um, I'm really excited. I'm excited to write that. Um, I've already interviewed one person. Um, and, um, also just like, I really want to like, just read as much as I can, Mm -hmm. um, over, over the, um, next few, um, the next few months. And also, as I said before, bond friendships, I I have like an entire like reading list, um, like that I want to read, um, because I feel like I've neglected it kind of over the senior years. And I, I think a lot of people can also relate to yeah um to kind of neglecting reading because um just reading for fun reading things that you like like anything on that list that you're looking forward to reading yeah um so i have like um i believe that's one of them is called like the ritual process it's um it's about like um like this con like limit have you heard of the concept like liminality Mm -mm. no it's like um so like rituals and liminality is basically like like in the middle and it's about like how like certain religions and these are like minor religions there's like difference between major and minor religions and that liminality is like the middle zone between um between um kind of like the beginning of a ritual and the end of a ritual Hmm. and um it's very like um it's a realm that uh, that like religious studies, which is something I might want to study in the future, um, that go it goes into. So I I think that I've been interested in that. 
So what what is the liminality? What does that mean? Is that a peaceful state? Is that a trance-like state? It's or is... a, like it's a middle. It's like in in the it it means in the middle. Okay. So um, if you think about um, like a certain like ritual, if we want to use like modern terms, yeah, I guess. Um, for Christmas probably for Christmas you can consider that a ritual or like a rite of passage. Um, you're kind of like passing birthdays and like the New Year. These are all rituals that you could have, and in these rituals, like like during the celebration, you're like doing these like um, practices that like pass like pass or like a sign or and are very symbolic of passing into the next phase. Okay. Which is the next year or the next uh, the next oh, year of gotcha. your life? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'll have to look in that too. Well, thank you, Leon. Yeah. Thank you for coming in today, and um, best of luck me. rest of senior year, and uh, let's keep in touch. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Thank you.